Hello, and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle, and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or Good Pods, to name a few, or just subscribe at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash sonicsema for exclusive audio content, such as my recently uploaded episode on the best film scores of 2021, as well as reviews and other written contact content, including Oscar and film festival content throughout the year. That's patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So last year, I had both my guests on the podcast individually, but I did want to bring them together since my first interactions with them were on their own podcast. But what subject made sense for such a reunion on the Sonic Cinema podcast? Seeing as though they're both chaotic Leos, as well as myself, and the month of the line is upon us, it only seemed appropriate to discuss maybe the most chaotic Leo in movie history, Metro Golden Mayor, better known as MGM. Before we get to that Leo, however, I'm pleased to reintroduce these two joining me today, Morgan and Shells of the Untitled Cinema Gals Project. Ladies, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be chaotic with the both of you. <laughs> so I had a short nap before this, so I am like ready. <laughs> Excellent. So normally I would skip the usual introduction of who my guests are and how they got started with films in their lives uh, with, when it comes to repeat guests. But seeing as though we didn't really get a chance to do that with Chels on when she was on the Best of 1996 episode last year. So with that being said, I did want to give her a chance. What was it that led you to film as something you wanted to dive deeper into? And where can people find you online? So people can find me at Chels725 on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's probably the places where I actually post stuff. Like, unless you want to see a picture of my nephew from six months ago on Instagram. But uh, that's a deep question you've asked about how. And I know exactly how. My grandma, my favorite grandma, the good one, she would let me watch whatever I wanted. Like, I fully watched Silence of the Lambs as a three-year-old. Like, I saw Con Air in theaters, and I was probably five? five or six <laughs> we would go to the local Warenberg which did not care if you walked from movie to movie because they just like it went out of business very much in my teen years but we would just walk into one movie one day and see how many we could go to I think our record was five in 2005 so yeah that's what really started my movie loving journey grandma being chaotic but she's a cancer so yeah um there there are a lot of uh jerry Bruckheimer productions that i would say are relatively inappropriate for a five-year-old certainly none quite like con air though uh, i i i love the movie but oh my god i can't imagine watching that as a five-year-old <laughs> <laughs> I fully just remember, like, 
not understanding any of it, but then that wonderful Diane Warren song comes on. Yeah. And I will say it should have won the Oscar. I feel like it was probably against something big like Titanic or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, that was the other Diane Warren song that maybe should have won. But oh my goodness. Like Diane Warren, she's been in my heart longer than I ever thought. Yeah. It's it's yeah, and we she's actually coming off of just another Oscar loss, and now she's going to be getting an honorary Oscar because that's kind of how they do it, which makes no sense whatsoever. She should have won at least four times. That is just yeah. my <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um it's no, it I I do love How Do I Live um from Con Air. It it beats my heart will go on. I'm sorry to say I I respect Titanic. I I don't. It wasn't even close to the best film from that year. <clears throat> oh, so again, great song. Love it. If I am drunk in a bar and it comes on, I will be singing it. But also, I am a Diane Warren cinema stan. So before we get to our main subject, though, do you prefer the Leanne Rhymes version or the Trisha Yearwood version? Oh, I'm cultured. I love the Trisha Yearwood version. Okay. All right. The correct version. Sorry, <laughs> Leanne Rhymes. I love you too. You're messy and I love you. Okay, I was just curious. Just curious. I I I think that Trisha Year was the better one to, as well. Um so but Con Air is not a movie from MGM, it's actually from Disney of all places. Uh but that being said, so MGM was formed by Marcus Lowe and Louis B. Mayer in 1924 by combining Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures, and Louis B. Mayer Pictures into a single company. Its slogan at the time was, more stars than there are in heaven, because they hired a number of well-known actors as contract players, which is how the old studio system operated at the time. For 30-plus years, it reigned as one of the most significant film studios in Hollywood, chiefly because of its history at the Oscars, as well as a run of some of the most popular musical films of all time. In the 1960s, it defested itself from the Lowe's movie chain and began to diversify into television. In 1969, Kirk Kikorian bought 40% of the company, and dramatically shifted in ways that would come to define it ever since, from muted output from year to year to further diversifying in terms of the MGM resort chain, acquiring another legendary studio in United Artists while running into financial issues and constantly shifting movie landscape. The way the studios were doing business during Hollywood's golden age was long gone, the corporatization of Hollywood that took hold in the 70s and 80s meant thinking of film as a commodity rather than art, which flies in the face of the studio's official model, emblazoned on its logo, Ars Gracias Artis, or Art for Art's Sake. The past 30 years has seen MGM flounders as an independent studio entity, But while it's continued to release significant films, its financial situation has never gotten better. And last year was sold to Amazon, no doubt to be little more than a content mill for a larger entity, much like 20th Century Fox is now for Disney. So we are going to discuss, each of us have chosen a favorite film that MGM has released over the year. 
But before we get into those, I want to open up the discussion to Morgan and Shells by first asking them, what do you think of when you think of MGM? It's so basic, but I think of the lion. I was literally just going to (laughs) say that. So two basic white bitches say it's the lion. (laughs) And how much I like the early 1930s lion more than the later, like, 70s and 80s version of the logo because they did change up that lion a few times in history like I like the very old version mm-hmm. yeah I think there was danger with that lion because it was the 30s and it's like who's gonna know what happens with this lion let's see if maybe we can get it to roar three times maybe <laughs> someone will die <laughs> So, so yeah, we're not a fan of the animated lion we <laughs> currently have. I know it's safer no, for the no. lions, but I like a little danger. It doesn't need to look perfect. I want <clears throat> a little edge in my film titles. I mean, it really does boil down to that logo. It is, it is certainly one of the more, most iconic logos in movie history, if not the most iconic one. Uh, but what you're saying, Morgan, as far as being safer, as far as running the risk of the lion eating people. What you're saying is the MGM lion is as logo is as safe as the infamous 1981 horror film roar with Tippi Hedren. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically, basically. And if you haven't seen that, okay, I, I stand corrected. That might be the most chaotic line in movie history because that movie is insane absolutely no training on those lines whatsoever it's amazing everybody survived and then there's also the lion king where so many lions had to die for the production of that and we're talking about the 2019 one not the animated version (laughs) but (laughs) yeah i mean that 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 logo is basically uh that that logo is basically what people come up with. And, um, you know, it's funny because of the fact that uh, one of my favorite movie documentaries is A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese on Through American Movies. It's a four-hour documentary on his personal history with American movies. And one of the things that you do see in some of that is he talks a lot about movie history, about studio system, how different studios had specific styles and the types of movies that they would come up with they would come out with um and mgm i think for especially somebody in scorsese's era the 1950s you would have a lot of big epics you would have a lot of fantasy in terms of the musicals that would come out in terms of adventures that would come out and it's really it really is kind of interesting to see how MGM evolved over the years. Because, I mean, I was looking at their list of films um, in Gang Ray for this podcast, and in the 1920s, they had movies like Greed by Von Stroheim. They had The Crowd, Faust, Broadway Melody. Uh, They had the very famous uh, Buster Keaton deal, which was the biggest mistake he even said he made in his life signing that deal with MGM. Uh, in the 30s, basically it was them like establishing themselves with the Oscars. 
Uh, you have the Champ, you have Grand Hotel, you have the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. You have Philadelphia Story in the 40s with Gaslight, They Were Expendable, and The Yearling. But in the 50s, you have American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, but also you have something like Bad and the Beautiful and Blackboard Jungle. In the 60s, it's really interesting to see the shift because you do have some fantasy still with Time Machine and Thief of Bad Dad, but you also have more prestigious films like Lolita, Dr. Zhivago, Blow Up, as well as The Dirty Dozen. And then in, you look at the 70s and 80s, and I'll admit, I, I think they have, just based on some of the noteworthy titles in the 80s, I think they had some great ones that decade, even when they were struggling. But you really see them, you really see them struggle as a company. And it's, it's really kind of striking just how, compared to the other ones that were around at the early age of film, MGM just struggled for a lot of different reasons that some of the other studios didn't seem to struggle with. Well, I mean, it's because they weren't allowed to exploit people as much <laughs> as they were in like the 30s and 40s. Because I mean, that's kind of what those contracts were doing. Yeah. And I mean, MGM isn't the only bad guy in it. Every studio was doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think that MGM was kind of like the biggest perpetrator of it because you do have Louis B. Mayer who established the Academy Awards as a way to create inner fighting amongst the trades and the crafts. And like he was a master manipulator. So, I mean, just look at, I mean, you have Judy Garland who he really abused as a child all the way into her adulthood. So, mm -hmm. I mean, of course you're going to struggle because all of a sudden, like the super villain of your company is not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of struggling and all the people in the actual MGM breaking up, like, <laughs> and also we can't forget about the death of um, Thayer, like in the late 30s and stuff, that was a real shift for them and the kind of films they were making. And they, like, once they couldn't have contract players and they burned through a lot of stars, like, very fast. Because, like, Norma Shearer, who we're going to talk about later, and Louise Reiner they had on like their staff and Greta Garbo, they all like pieced right around the same time. And Joan Crawford pieced out as well. So it was just a lot of, they, just a lot of hits at different times. Yeah. And now, I mean, they've been sold to Amazon. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a new super villain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. And like I said, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like everybody automatically thought about, like the Pink Panther and James Bond and stuff like that when that deal came up with uh, Amazon. But like the more I started to think about with regards to this particular uh, episode, I, I couldn't help but think of chances are what we're going to see MGM become for Amazon is exactly what 20th Century Fox has become for Disney, which is you're going to give us content for Prime. We'll occasionally put something out in theaters from you, like Bond or something that's very big IP. 
but for the most part, it's like you're just going to be part of our production company. And, you know, I mean, and honestly, the, the ring, it's a shame because the ring has been kind of on the wall for a while because mo looking at the past 20 years, most of the most most distinct films from MGM in the past 20, 30 years are co-productions with other studios, whether it's United Arts, whether it's Sony with the James Bond films, whether it's 20th Century Fox or Warner Brothers with the Rocky Balboa movies. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like they just... At a certain point, they they just forgot how to be a movie studio and how to how to do something interesting with the brands that they had. And I mean, they still had some they still have some decent movies I actually kind of like in the past 20 years, but you'd be like all of them hold a candle to what they had at their peak. Yeah, and it doesn't help that, like, in the late 80s, they sold a lot of their library to Turner Classic Movies, yeah. Ted Turner, mm -hmm. and then the whole, there was a whole rights issue for, like, the next 13, 14 years with all of those films, who's going to distribute them and everything, and I think Warner's still owns the rights to Gone with the Wind, yeah. their most, like, profitable film of all time, like, yeah. it's the, it's still adjusted for inflation, the highest grossing, nobody's ever going to touch that. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's pretty sad that, like, you can look at each decade and see it slowly fall apart. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, it's, it, it really, I mean, you know, my, my official favorite, I mean, some of my favorite films from MGM are now distributed by Warner Brothers. I mean, including the one we're going to be talking about today. And, uh, but at the same time, you still have the line in front of the, in front of the, uh, credits, so it counts. But yeah, I mean, it's it it is really kind of it's really just kind of striking to see because looking at the eighties, they had Fame, Clash of the Titans, Poltergeist, The Secret of Nim, Pink Floyd, The Wall, Year of Living Dangerously, War Games, Christmas Story. That's just through nineteen eighty three. Then he had Red Dawn, two thousand ten, Cat's Eye, Rocky Four. Nine and a Half Weeks, Spaceballs, Moonstruck, A Fish Called Wanda, Child's Play, Rain Man, and Roadhouse. They had a Best Picture winner, and they were still struggling. And now, granted, they had Cher and Moonstruck, and that movie made so much money. Yeah, like movies don't make money like that anymore. Mm -hmm. But then they would also release crap like from Canon Films. Like they had a deal with Canon Films to release a lot of their schlock. And, uh, you know, it's the nineties, they, they had some really good films and really memorable films in the nineties. You have Thelma and Louise, uh, Stargate species, get shorty leaving Las Vegas showgirls, which I, I have, I, I'm not a fan of, but Chelsea, I know you are, I love it. Golden eye Ronin. They had some good stuff. And even in the two thousands, they had legally blonde and which is, a, which is a film that so many people love, but they just it it just got to the point where they basically became a production company for other studios, namely stuff like War, namely Warner Brothers, and it's it really is 
the the fact that a studio could fall like this is just it's it's hard to imagine it it really kind of is but i mean a studio that they've been as linked to as any united artists is fallen on harder times because of the fact that they barely exist now yeah i mean like you even think though about the studios I think one of the things that they didn't have that something like a 20th Century Fox had before now it's being, you know, that it has been acquired by Disney was, I mean, Fox had their own kerfuffle with Cleopatra basically bankrupting the studio to the point where if you go to Century City, California, where the Fox studio is located, that is essentially, that entire city was their former backlot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that now it is office buildings and there are ABC buildings nearby and all of that. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think where Fox essentially took a decade or so to lick its wounds and try to get back in the game for the 80s and 90s, the MGM, I think, kind of looked at that to say like, oh, well, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. And like, they just kept falling deeper and deeper and deeper because they were mm-hmm. waiting for the bottom. So, you know, not everyone has a Cleopatra to screw them over. <laughs> yeah, gone is the era in the 1930s where little Deanna Durbin, a child star before Judy Garland, was literally saving Universal and everybody with her little musicals that are, if you've seen them, not good. She's a great singer. Those movies are very bad and problematic. <laughs> worried for that child like have not deep dived that too much but yeah literally this is like like one movie could make or break a film studio and now we're like hmm i wonder if that will ever happen to another person it almost happened with sony fairly recently with all the james bonds yeah yeah i mean and sony is another one where i mean obviously it's like most people consider sony as opposed to columbia pictures but like there's there's another iconic studio from the golden age that is completely re recontextualized no, now as Sony as opposed to its own entity, and I mean it basically goes to the corporate the the corporate uh, structure that these these studios basically got bit, bought out by bigger companies and who were looking to diversify. Yeah, it's a lot of tech companies and stuff. Like, Sony makes most of their money from literally everything else, like selling cameras and technology products and SD cards. Yeah. Like, the movies are always the other thing, even mm. when you go to Disney. Disney's not making most of their monies from movies. They're making most of their money from frozen toys and cars. Yeah. And, and it's wild when you consider the fact that there was a time when Disney was going through hard times in before Eisner got there in the eighties and because of the park and because of their, the way they re-released stuff, they were able to make it work until they figured out their, they, they got their second win with little mermaid. And it's, it's just really always a fascinating idea to, look at the way studios rise and fall. And, you know, I, I think with MGM, it's, it's one of those things where 
you know, there's, I, I will still, you know, for the longest time, my, one of my favorite movies was an MGM film last year was Serrano. It had, like, Peter Dinklage was one of my top choices for best actor that year, it, last year, and it, it broke my heart that he didn't get nominated, but it also didn't help that they were in the middle of this, of, of this takeover with Amazon that a lot of their release schedules and a lot of their awards positioning kind of went by the wayside. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, it, it's hard to, especially when you think about the three movies that we're going to be talking about, um, it's hard to think that the same move studio that couldn't figure out how to get how who've ha, who've had to go to other studios to get James Bond financed made these three movies, which are arguably some of the best that they've ever made. Um, I mean, I as somebody who's now seen all three of them, I can absolutely say that. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about them, but it's hard to imagine. It's hard to reconcile the fact that these movies were made by the same studio who struggled to get Bond off the ground again for the longest time, and it it's it's just hard to it's it's hard to fathom that. Yeah, it's weird. Like they did have a better 2021. I'll give them that because like. Love it or hate it, Adam's Family 2 cartoon made so much money. Candyman did okay. Mm -hmm. No Time to Die, House of Gucci, Licorice Pizza. Like, love or hate those films, they did pretty good. And I will say their best film recently has been one Cyrano. I think that was a very well-made movie. But also the Channing Tatum dog movie is yeah. not a comedy. It talks about trauma and the military. And I'm like, that's <laughs> this isn't... This is a very poorly marketed, except for it, them it, saying the dog doesn't die. But yeah. I'm also like, this is a lot deeper than what the trailer is trying to tell you. Well, and that's, that is, thank you for saying that. Because, yeah, I don't know how the idea that that became a comedy came up. Because it's not a comedy at all. It's an enjoyable movie. And it's a fun movie, but to a certain extent. But, yeah, it's a serious subject. But this, it's amazing, despite that. That movie still made a relatively decent amount of money. Yeah, Channing Tatum is a star <laughs> this year. He has that in The Lost City of D. I'm going to keep calling it the original title because it's better. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it is these films that we've been craving, these mid-budget adult films that are going to yeah. come back and save the theater. And these are the films that they were making in the era that we're about to talk about with our other films. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to that time and it's funny it's it's interesting because of and I'll talk about my personal choice uh when when we get there but I I like that we all ended up with choices that are in that golden age from the 1930s to 1960s which it, on another part of my uh podcast established classics that's kind of what we've been calling from when we've talked about movies from that era. It's basically the 30s to 1960. Um, but we are going to start with uh, Morgan's favorite film from MGM. And if you want to introduce that to us. 
Gladly. So I chose 1934's The Thin Man. It stars uh, William Powell as Nick Charles, who is a detective who gets roped into um, working a recent murder case. And uh, he is both aided and frequently annoyed by his amazing wife, Nora Charles, played by Myrna Loy. And it is one of my favorite Christmas movies because it takes place around Christmas. And yeah, it's, it's just so good. So that's kind of the background of The Thin Man. This, this is, yeah, and it's, uh, it's based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett, who is better known for writing The Maltese Falcon. And the thing that I love about this is that you see two very different ways of approaching the same type of detective story, one that's more comedic and one that's more serious. Um, I I watched The Thin Man for the first time a couple of years ago and really enjoyed it. I I watched rewatched it this past week for to get ready for the podcast. I I absolutely this is such a delight. It it really is such a delight. And it boils down to I think one of my favorite parts about it is the fact that Nick Charles is basically almost willed into doing this solving this mystery against his own will. I I love that aspect of this this story because of it's not like oh yeah, I'll take this case. It's like gradually he just finds himself in situations where, okay, I might as well just solve this. And I, I have to say the ending, the ending scene, we'll, we'll talk about more, but I love the ending scene of this where um, it's basically that classic moment of, I'm going to lay all of this out. And it's, it's one of the best examples of that. I think I've seen in a movie. Yeah, I remember watching this, oh, I must have been in high school, and I was just upset. The Thin Man ended up becoming a six-film series that they, uh, MGM, did, and I just love all of the movies because it is both kind of that detective noir, but it has elements of a screwball comedy um, because the banter between Nick and Nora is just impeccable. Mm. I, um, it's very quick witted. They're both, they both have excellent timing. Um, William Powell and Myrna Loy would work on like a dozen films together, not just the six, uh, thin man movies, but other films as well, because they just have amazing chemistry. And yeah, that last, where everyone, where everything is kind of laid out, also has humorous elements to it. Mm. Where he even turns to her and is like, "What do you think of this so far?" And she's like, "This is the best dinner I've ever listened to," <laughs> and it's just so funny. I just, I, I just love their dry sarcasm and their humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like, this is one of the wonderful pre-code comedies because if you watch a lot of these pre-code films that the stars of our films are about to. Like you're gonna see, 
they are real saucy and it's amazing they got away with anything even though there wasn't a code yet there were still like you know just a vibe of hey maybe we should be safer and this is a screwball comedy about murder mm-hmm. and that's like the easiest selling point I'm like this is great it's a comedy about murder just like you can say Jenny Slate's movie is a comedy about abortion <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And again, remember, this is like 1934. Yeah. Whenever, like, we're coming right out of the Depression era, pre World War II. So we're in this weird vibe of the U.S. trying to rebuild itself before disaster comes, and people are only looking for entertainment. And this movie made so much money; it was nominated for a ton of Oscars. It lost all of them to It Happened One Night. Another great film. Will not disparage, but I think it's really cool that this film has a great legacy it is the original mcu building its world (laughs) having a ton of films over a decade and a half i i was going to ask about the sequels and how they were but the fact that the the fact that it's still powell and lloyd throughout the uh throughout the series yeah i mean it i i can't imagine i'm i'm sure some of them are obviously better than others but I can't imagine any of them being just completely flat and not entertaining whatsoever. I enjoy them because I just enjoy their dynamic as actors. Also, Skippy the dog is one of the greatest cinema dogs because he was also in two of my other favorite films of all time, The Awful Truth, Irene Dunn, Chaotic Amazing, and Bringing Up Baby, Catherine oh, Hepburn, Chaotic Amazing. <laughs> So this dog knows how to act around chaotic women. Yeah, that's true. Lived a great life. And then they magically just kept this dog alive <laughs> through the 40s. Yeah. I, Myrna Loy is also a chaotic Leo. Her birthday is August 2nd. And I love the fact that she's this chaotic Leo because I think she really brought, I've seen a lot of, like a number of her other films and she is not chaotic. She unfortunately was kind of typecast into inappropriate roles as the quote unquote exotic character. So she played mm. a lot of non-white people when she was a white person, um, which she Definitely did. the time when every white woman was exotic and Louise Reiner is the worst of them. Thank you, MGM. Yeah. Uh. And I mean, <laughs> I will... I'll give Myrna Loy some credit too that like later on in her career, she really acknowledged the error of that um, and really talked about how wrong Hollywood was in general for doing that. And we also have to remember that these actors did not have control over the roles as much as we wish they mm-hmm. would. Yeah. Like if they were told they had to do something, they were a contract employee. So that means they came and that week did whatever they wanted. Well, some of them got to do whatever they wanted on set, but didn't get to pick the roles, but they were, it was pretty strict. They didn't get a lot of breaks. Most of them were making like half a dozen films a year because these, they were just churning out content. Mm-hmm. People yeah. talk about, oh, there's too much junk in the media and stuff right now. And I'm like, you really have not seen how many <laughs> movies were released in the thirties and the forties, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Michael, Michael Curtiz made what, like 80 some odd films over his career and like, did he sleep? Yeah, exactly. I I can't imagine how I, I can't imagine how you. I mean, I've, I mean, did did films at the time even take? I don't think films at the time took as much time 
to make as they do now. But the fact of the matter is, how do you keep up that pace? I I just don't yeah. understand it. I mean, they were, I always compare it to Law & Order SVU because every person who's ever been on that show says it's such a well-oiled machine mm-hmm. because Mariska Hargitay makes sure everything is done at a certain time. And I'm like, so Marissa Hargitay, Mariska, she was probably the head of MGM in a past life because, <laughs> or some studio, because yeah. she was making sure everything was on time. She was telling all these performers, you better get out of your dressing room right now. Mm-hmm. She told these directors, hush, the writers are important. Because because directors were not super important at that time. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we weren't really at the... Uh, although we'll, we'll talk about a couple of directors whose names are well-known and are relatively important. You know, uh, W.S. Van Dyke, there's not a whole lot that I think of when I hear that name other than the thin man but um does it surprise either of you that nobody in the modern day has really tried to redo this film series I respect them for not trying to redo it because I think that it's really hard to have the same type of snappy dialogue and quick move. Like this is a 91 minute movie. Like this isn't some kind of epic where you're going to hunker down, get some pillows for some lower back support kind of thing. Like this was a comedy. And one of the things I feel like I saw this on TMC. One of the things about the film and this series was that they always paired male and female writers so that Hmm. when they were coming up with dialogue, they could essentially just banter together and figure it out together, which is a little sexist, but also like kind of brilliant to have two people who might come from very opposite perspectives of what these characters should be doing and having to work together for the same goal. And we really don't do that because we don't put people in the same space. Like now, You can do it over Zoom where people will just literally send the script back and forth and make their own edits and, you know, doctor it up. And like, there just wasn't that type of forced collaboration. Um, Like current, like we don't have that anymore. And that was, I think, one of the things that made the film so special was that dialogue. That, and we also have to remember, there's so much overlapping dialogue. And I know, um, One of our favorite filmmakers, Greta Gerwig, has talked about how these screwball comedies are an inspiration. Sorry, that's my dog that jumped. But um, yeah, he, like, we are seven years out from, like, synchronized sound to film. Mm -hmm. And there is so much technical sound with the overlapping dialogue in this that I'm like, how did you make this less than a decade out from whatever because I watched the original holiday the one without Catherine Hepburn from 1931 and you can tell where people are like trying to speak very clearly and you can there's probably a microphone six feet away and it is there's such a difference in the filmmaking just a couple years before to what they are doing right there Mm -hmm. and even after the fact because you get a lot of these The sound, it seems weird how people are talking, and you're like, that's because they're still inventing it. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, to go to 
to go off on a tangent on another uh, MGM film for a little bit, you know, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about something like Singing in the Rain, which is famously about the transition from silent to sound. I, I love, not only is Singing in the Rain just a tremendously entertaining film, it's also something that's kind of informative in, of how Hollywood was at that point. And you see some of those early, how the silent era came to be, how how the transition to sound was so difficult. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't even, I didn't even think about the fact that this is seven years out from the transition to sound and it, you couldn't tell. Like it, it could very easily be a ma movie made in the 80s or 90s and you wouldn't blink an eye as far as how the dialogue works and how the, the overlapping dialogue works. Um, I mean, to and to sort of answer my own question, I, I think that's an... I, I, for one, am glad they haven't tried to redo this, too. I wonder if some of the reason they haven't tried... Nobody's tried to remake these or do a new... Do an update of them is because this dynamic, male-female dynamic of, like, banter and, you know, back and forth and sometimes solving crimes is so prevalent on TV... Like, you, you look at, like, Moonlighting, you look at Bones and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of been adapted into TV shows where you can have these longer arcs where you're building up the characters, you basic, and it basically just boils down to the interactions between the two leads. I would say it's that, but also that we don't value rom-coms anymore because you look at when Harry met Sally and it is that quick banter that is easily mm -hmm. so inspired by all of these films. And you just even go through the decade and what, throw a dart at whatever Julia Roberts was doing. And like, you look at my best friend's wedding and that singing scene and you're like, oh, this feels like it's right out of a screwball comedy because there's so many dynamics happening and so many characters are going and you understand where each character is and their perspective. So I think it's just, this is a rom-com. It is basically a romantic comedy, murder, screwball, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And there's a lot of misogyny in that because we don't make those anymore. We don't make really good ones anymore. Mm -hmm. They give you $5 at Netflix or $6 at Hulu and say, go film this with an unknown teen star. And where are the adult rom-coms? Yeah. Like we get train wreck a handful of years ago with like when you give money to Greta Gerwig, she makes something that is so inspired by that. You look at the talking and little women, you're like, that's a screwball inspired moment. And so, yeah, they're just, again, it's like the death of the mid budget, the death of the rom-com. It's all connected to like why we're not getting a lot of this anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, we we talked about when we were we were talking about bringing up Baby on the last established classics, and yeah, I mean, screwball comedies. I mean, I think one of the last real ones was What's Up Doc in the seventies, and then comedy just kind of became something else. And then the eighties, you have like teen sex comedies and stuff like that. Then you started to see romantic comedies that weren't completely in the screwball realm in the nineties, but they still had that feel of, you know, that it was important for the male and female protagonist to 
have that connection in the same way of like a Cary Grant and uh, Catherine Hepburn in Bring Up Baby or His Girl Friday. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right as far as the the romantic romantic comedy, and it is you know, yeah, there's so much to talk about with Netflix and what they're doing. Um, you know that I think that's one of the reasons why I know a lot of people really connected to Marry Me earlier this year with Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson is because it seemed like a return to that, and then you had Lost City, and now we've got a uh, the George, George Clooney, Julia Roberts one coming out later this year. I literally cannot wait. It's going to be a lot. I saw the trailer in a theater last night and I felt alive. My niece, who I took to see Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again in the theater when she was three in that exact same theater, she read that because she can read now and it's scary. And she's like, oh, he made Mamma Mia? And so <laughs> she's excited too when she's seven. <laughs> But yeah, the Thin Man. I mean, if you haven't had a chance to see it, be by all means see it. is is a wonderful, funny comedy. Do you get? Do you have anything else you want to say on it? I mean, other than please see it, please watch all of all six of them. Jimmy Stewart's in one of them. Like they weren't just getting some like Joe Schmo to show up as a bit player in these films. Like they really did get stars to show up for the sequels. Yeah. That, and I want to tell, this will comfort Morgan in some weird way, because even though the Academy Awards are dumb, Myrna Loy was never nominated for a competitive one. The year we were born, though, at the 1991 mm-hmm. one, she got an honorary, but this is one of the few years where they actually tell you who runners-up are in the Oscars. So, like, Best Actor, Best Actress, they didn't even have supporting categories at this point. Um, there were two like write-ins and stuff. And even Betty Davis was a write-in for this year. She's not an official nominee, but she had enough support to, like, it's on Wikipedia. Myrna Loy was fifth place. So (laughs) had they not been categories of three, had they actually been moved to five, like they would later, she would have been a competitive nominee for one of her best films. I, I, I love, I love that. I mean, I just love that Myrna Loy loved her career enough that she just didn't really care about awards, but was also super gracious when she. Yeah. It's like all her friends petitioned for it, but I do want to say this is not the only great film from the year. Like Morgan, this is a banger year. It happened one night. Then man, the other Cleopatra from (laughs) Claudette Colbert. It's the year of Claudette Colbert because she's in three of the best picture nominees, imitation of life, the version that me and Morgan like more and then, like, you can't see it, but the White Parade, it's um, only available at the UCLA Archive. Um, so if you are able to see it, cool. Or if you're able to find it by other means, it's so difficult because it's only at the Archive. But sometimes people will try to upload snippets to YouTube. It is really good. So, yeah. Okay. yeah it's a really great year of film. Yeah. yeah. 1934. Yeah, and we're actually going to transition to another great year in uh, movie history with 1939. And Chels, what is your choice? So when the topic of MGM was brought up, I genuinely went through their entire decade, hundred year of filmography, made a giant list, and then like, Chelsea, you're an idiot. The Women is one of your favorite films of all time. So of course I picked it. (laughs) Again, so many wonderful options 
But gang, I'm just going to read off some of this cast because all bangers. Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Paulette Goddard, Joan Fontaine, Lucille Watson, and then literally uh, more than 130 women speak in this film. All the animals in this film are of women. It is directed by George Cukor, a flaming homosexual. I mean, he made my fair lady, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he also he also did the uh, Judy Garland, uh, James Mason, The Stars Born, didn't he? I believe so. I will fact check because, again, this guy is all bangers. He did the other little women. He was one of the directors of Gone with the Wind. He yep. did Philadelphia Story, <laughs> Gaslight. Yep, A Star is Born. Born Yesterday, which is a film that doesn't get enough respect, and it's very, very good. So he's like one of the greatest directors in cinema ever. Mm-hmm. So I love that this, like, this is a very complicated production. Did not get nominated for Oscars because it was 1939, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, like tons of big films that year were happening in Washington. And this film made so much money for its time. Not gone with the wind money. But it's also super complicated and it resonates with me still because um, if Morgan knows anything about my life, it's that I love petty gossip. Like, we we are petty people. We love gossip. And this film, literally, the inciting incident (laughs) is petty gossip. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have petty parties, and if we literally were like petty, we text each other petty party, and the other person's like, go. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we would, I do call being Rosalind Russell, but yes, we would definitely be in the women. Hedda Hopper is in this film as a version of herself, but also this film, I made a letterbox list. It's called Women That Go to Hot Girls That Go to Reno for Divorces. It's that (laughs) and Desert Hearts. And that's what it is. And this is during the code. So like Norma Shearer, her pre-code stuff is super saucy. And you're like, truly go back and watch any of her like Oscar nominated stuff. And you're like, oh, she is a hot girl just burning through cinema. And then whenever the code hits, they put her in a lot of boring stuff. Like she's in a Romeo and Juliet in her thirties. And it's very awkward. But this, I feel like really plays to her strengths because it is silly, a little devious And even behind the scenes, it is, it's what I miss from cinema now, which is divas being divas and like Mm -hmm. movie stars allowed to be movie stars. They literally had to knock on the main three women's doors at the same time to get them to come to set at the same time because they all wanted to be number one. (laughs) And that's Norma, Joan, and Rosalind. I love that. It's early Joan Fontaine before like she goes to Rebecca and like her Hitchcock run and is super successful. And I just really love it because it is about the dynamics of women. And I don't ever feel bad for Joan Crawford plays the quote unquote villain crystal. I never like hate her or anything because in the film, she's stealing Norma Shearer's husband and stuff and want very scandalous during the code. Mm -hmm. So like Norma is going to get a divorce and everything. And Joan is just like, She is a loose woman, but she's a perfume counter woman. She doesn't want to be a mother to Norma's child. And she's just trying to get ahead in life because during this time, women, like we, again, we're going backwards in time now. We don't, we're losing rights. Women didn't have any rights. Like 
you had to find a husband to be able to live and support yourself. That was just the tragic reality. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you came from money and you were able to be a spinster, like that's a luxury at this time. And so for them to like really kind of address all of this stuff in a very, very, very funny film that should have won an Oscar for sound and was not even nominated because I don't know how they filmed all of these speaking roles only a decade out from synchronized sound. It's just, I don't know, it's just super rad. This was, yeah, this was my first time seeing it. And, uh, you're welcome. Yeah, it was, it was such a tremendous film to watch. I, as, as much as, you know, I mean, Gone with the Wind is certainly a, a difficult film to talk about, rightfully so, because of the way it deals with the old South and slavery and all of that. But even, Vivian Lee in as Scarlett O'Hara is one of the great performances of all time. That being said, I there is a part of me that thinks Norma Shearer in this movie is better. I I think she she is absolutely tremendous in this movie because of the fact that she has there are moments where she has to be theatrical, there are moments where she has to be emotional. And every moment, every big moment with her, whether it's her telling their daughter about the divorce and trying to explain it in a very calm and not emotional way, whether it's her confronting Crystal in the dressing room. And it is, it's such an amazing performance. She goes through so much in the film and I've seen films where I think she was going too big at certain points, but this is one, it is my favorite Norma film. I'm always hit and miss with her in certain things. It's literally like love her pre-code after the code it's hit and miss because then she, she retires just a few years after this. Like her husband has already passed away at this point. He was head of production at MGM. So, you know, she was queen of the castle up until that point. And as okay, I don't think I would take away Vivian Lee's Oscar because it's the one of the very few instances that a very like a complicated, messy, difficult woman character actually mm-hmm. wins an award. Because Scarlett O'Hara's like Norma was almost Scarlett and gone with the wind. She really wanted to be, and the public heard about it and literally like backlash. Gone with the wind was like more popular the pre-production than an Avengers film. Yeah. They were like, literally, how, who's going to be Scarlett O'Hara? And I really love Scarlett O'Hara as a complicated, terrible person because it is a film about terrible people and you see them being terrible. But it is also just a banger of a Best Actress lineup. And I'm sad because... Rosalind Russell and Joan Crawford I would nominate them but it's the era of it's not leader supporting based on runtime and stuff that's not a real thing in this era it's leading supporting is your lead actors are your famous people your supporting actors are your workman actors mm-hmm. like if, if you're a star you're in lead it doesn't matter if you were in the movie for two minutes so I don't understand I don't understand why people get upset about category fraud because it's not a real thing especially it was not invented to be this thing but it is such a good movie, and I get upset seeing that it wasn't nominated for a screenplay award more than anything because I do think the script is so tight and perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I love so much about this movie is kind of the fact that especially they all are both, they all are likable and slightly unlikable in their Mm -hmm. own ways. And so you as the audience have to sit there and determine, are you, what are you going to put up with? But one of my favorite things too is kind of like John Crawford's character is basically saying like, to marry Norma Shearer's character like this isn't personal like I needed a man Mm -hmm. and it's also kind of highlighting the fact too that it's like you probably also weren't like deeply in love with him like you also needed a man too sorry I took yours but that's kind of how the cookie crumbles here. Yeah, and we also have to put in the class dynamics that Joan Crawford Mm -hmm. is a perfume counter girl which is everybody laughs at her for that. Like mm-hmm. they call her names for that. And the only way she can call them names back is to judge them on how much money they spend on the perfume. Cause that's how rich they are. Norma's probably from a fairly wealthy, wealthy family, her character, Mary. And so again, I can never really hold it against these women. The only person who might be a little villainous, if you really squint and look at it from a different angle is Rosalind Russell, mm-hmm. Sylvia, but also she's the most fun and a petty gossip. And I'm like, I want to be you when I grow up. Yeah. And that is kind of what makes the Rosalind Russell character like so interesting. So good. She just, she's like, she creates the chaos and then just sits back and is like, yeah, tell me she more. Nudges, she nudges enough people and it's mm-hmm. wonderful. But I will say Joan does get the most iconic line of, and by the way, there's a name for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society outside mm-hmm. of a kennel. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. best line. So, I, yeah. I, was, I was. The ways they get around the code. <laughs> yeah, that was that was definitely one of the things that uh, that popped up a lot when I was watching it yesterday. Was yeah, you can definitely tell the way they wrote this screenplay to get around the production code at the time. And I mean that's that's a great example of that line by uh, Crawford. Yeah, Rosalind Russell is really she she's just absolute. I I love that she is the one that she's basically just like lobbing grenades at all of these situations, and uh, you know almost doesn't really care one way or the other. She she doesn't really have any true loyalty, but it's so fun to watch that you you it's hard not to like like he says hard not to enjoy her even though you can kind of see her being you know she's a bit mischievous she's a bit i mean it there's not really anybody here that you actively dislike like everybody i think has their moments and but you can also understand why they're doing what they're doing I I think my favorite um, performance that gets unheralded is Virginia Weidler as Lil Mary. I think going with Norma Shearer, that the scene where she's telling Lil Mary about the divorce, and then the scene that Lil Mary has later with Crystal in the bathtub where she's clearly heard her talking to Buck over the phone is just such an amazing performance by a child actor. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, 
Normally, this era of kids especially, I do not like child actors for the most part. The 1930s is rough. There are so many movies where I'm like, okay, they're just little serial killers. That is their energy. I'm looking at Meet Me in St. Louis, that little kid in there that I don't like that won an Oscar for it, an honorary kid one. But yeah. No, I will say my only note about this movie I don't like is just something they have to do for the code. They did it in the Philadelphia story. It's where the person who gets divorced reunites with their husband at the end. And that is what happens and stuff. You don't see the husband, but like, I mean, spoilers for the Philadelphia story. Uh, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant get back together in the end after the first scene where he pushes her like very comically out the door. I, I was going to bring up the ending because I do kind of feel like it, I understand, look, again, looking at it in the context of the code, you understand why it went in that direction. I can't, but at the same time, it does, it does really feel like moralizing for like, oh, it's got to be, oh, married people have to stay together and stuff like that. You hear that from the mother. And, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily... And, I mean, that's one of the things that I like about the fact that Mary does... I mean, part of it is plot mechanics, but also the fact that she makes this choice on her own. Even, yes, it's obviously goosed by her friends telling her, oh, you've got to get a divorce. She makes that choice on her own that this needs to happen. And yeah, like I was the the movie I thought about uh when I was writing about the ending for this one was Nancy Myers the Holiday. One and the most satisfying part of that ending is when Kate Winslet's character realizes she doesn't need Rufus Sewell's character anymore. And it's such a wonderful personal triumph. We get the satisfying ending with Crystal Ganger Kamumpets, basically at the end. The idea that, oh, she's, Mary has to go back to her husband, it just doesn't, it's, it's the only big issue I have with an otherwise terrific film. It's why I really don't like the code. I mean, for so many other reasons, because of misogyny and, and like, homophobia and everything and racisms but like yeah it's I always say this in like the film dance girl dance cut off like the last two minutes of the movie probably give or take and it's a perfect film but you know we had to get to the code standards couldn't mm. have the Christians coming after you title of the episode couldn't have the Christians coming after you <laughs> I'm really on one aren't I <laughs> We'll, we'll 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 talk about some pure flicks later, and uh, and and we'll we'll make that the title. Um, but yeah, as far as the I, I you you mentioned the uh, timeline earlier and how complex this story is. It's it's weird how nonlinear the story is here, but how linear it ultimately is in terms of the progression of the story, and like there the fact that they don't have title cards saying, oh, this is two weeks later and a month later or a year later. And you're basically just, it's basically you just following it. I did want to bring up um, 
this is a film where, and, you know, MGM did this sort of to a certain extent with Wizard of Oz in the same year, where it's a film where it's black and white as well as color. Now, obviously, Wizard of Oz is predominantly color because you spend most of your time in Oz. Here, there's a fashion show that the women go to where it's in color and everything else is in black and white. Are, are you guys as surprised as I am that more films didn't really, have never really taken advantage of this whole idea of, oh, well, you don't necessarily have to be in one particular, you know, you don't have to be just in black and white, just in color, you know, that you can mix it up for dramatic effect? I know the reason a lot of them didn't try to mess around or like only were in black and white was because of budgetary reasons. Because again, they, they were churning out these films. They didn't care. There was like, they would have their investment like, Gone with the Wind was their investment. Wizard of Oz, mm. which was a bomb when it came out. It did not make money until it's 4,000 re-releases. And it, like, it was mostly budgetary stuff like Roman Holiday, the big Audrey Hepburn breakout film. They filmed it on location in Italy, which meant they could not film it in color. Like That was a big trade-off for like having actually being in Rome. And I, my favorite fact about this is that Again, directors did not have a lot of control at this time. George Cukor hated the Technicolor fashion show, um, and he wanted it out. <laughs> a lot of film critics agreed at the time they did not like it. People would <laughs> later compare it to Hitchcock's nightmare sequence in Spellbound. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is hilarious, and I can totally understand. But yeah, it was just one of those things that... They did it because they were able to get like an actual designer to do it. And it was a way to generate money because at the time, go watch all, everyone go watch this little TCM. Like they have a cool fashion history thing that they're attaching to a lot of their stuff this summer. Um, they did this because like along with the women, people like Macy's and stuff were putting out affordable fashion inspired by the films. So it was like another avenue of income. It's like, let's go get our Frozen toys after we go see the little animated movie. It's like, no, you want to dress like Norma Shearer or Joan Crawford, and mm -hmm. you can. So I love that that was the purpose of the little sequence. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, that was, this was, yeah, and I watched it on HBO Max, and I had that uh, tag that you're talking about. We're talking about the fashion in this. And yeah, I mean, I, it's, that's one of the things that I do love about something like TCM where it does provide context for this. And I mean, you know, TCM and Criterion Channel and all of that, I mean, that's, it's, it's important to be able to have that context for these movies. And I think it does help give people who may be coming to these movies for the first time, a, a way into understanding why some of the choices were made. But uh, no, the the women is absolutely a uh, it it's an absolutely terrific film, and uh, I I I appreciate Chelsea for bringing this up because of the fact that it was a first time watch, and I'm I'm glad that I, I'm familiar with it now, and uh, so we are going to move to my last film or my favorite film, 
which is technically not my favorite MGM film. Uh, my, my favorite MGM film is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. But if you listen to Untold Cinema Ghost, you know that we talked about 2001 Space Odyssey already when we talked about favorite soundtracks. And I've done audio commentary on 2001. I've written a soundtrack from 2001. I've written blogs and reviews. I, I feel like I've talked enough about 2001 to make my uh, feelings not known. You know, and looking at it, there are a couple of other things I could have easily gone with here. I could have gone with The Cameraman by Buster Keaton, which is, he's, he's one of my absolute favorites. I could have gone with A Christmas Story, which is one that I adored as a kid and I still love now, but I decided to go with my mother's favorite film of all time in 1959's North by Northwest from the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. And it's funny that Morgan and I talked about Alfred Hitchcock a lot in some of her, his other films from this era um, last year. So it wasn't necessarily something that I thought about when it came to North by Northwest. It basically just came to the fact that this one made the most sense, I think, because A, it is from that golden era of Hollywood. It is an iconic film. It is one of the great films of all time. And honestly, if if you really, you know, if you really hold my feet to the fire, fire this is one of my favorite films of all time as well. Is it? as well as my mother's. Um, I, it's a classic Hitchcock uh, thriller in the sense of Cary Grant's character is mistaken for somebody he is not. And the, the way the screenplay by Ernest Lehman sets up that trap very quickly and almost where you don't even have time to really think about, but you can tell in the way Hitchcock shoots it and the way that it's performed, you can just tell right away, oh, this is happening right, this is happening soon. We're getting right into it. And from there on out, he's basically having to prove his name and prove who he is. This is just such a delightful thriller. I mean, it's, it is the most entertaining movie Hitchcock has ever made. And I love the score by Bernard Herrmann here. It is as, inf I think this movie is as influential to modern action films in every way as Seven Samurai is and Kurosawa is. Um, it's, it's just, there's so much to absolutely love about this film. Do we think Tom Cruise learned how to run from Cary Grant in this movie? <laughs> I, I think the only one he really runs in a suit in is The Firm. I I think he probably runs just a bit better than Cary Grant, but I definitely see where you're coming from. Yeah, because he's in athleisure wear when he's running in the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, I, when I think of this film, the first thing I think of is this is hot people cinema. Because you have Cary Grant, Eve Marie Saint, James Mason, and then a very young Martin Landau, who mm. is so hot in this movie. Literally hot because it looks like it was a hot film to make. Yeah. And then, yeah. Well, everybody's just, in suits. So, yeah, of course, it would be naturally a hot movie right. to make. Um, yeah, I had the chance to meet Martin Landau about a decade ago at Dragon Con. 
and uh, got a chance to uh, tell him that uh, North by Northwest was my mother's favorite movie. She didn't get a chance to go that year. And, uh, I mean, I was a fan of him because of Ed Wood. But, um, yeah, seeing him in this movie was... I think I had seen Ed Wood by this point. I think it was about that. So I was familiar with, obviously, older Martin Landau. So seeing him this young, it's like, wow. It's such a jarring thing. But, uh, yeah, uh, the, the chemistry between Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint in this movie is electric it is is absolutely wonderful and you i love the byplay between them when they're in the the uh dinner carts in while they're uh on the train to chicago and uh it's it's just absolutely it's it's absolutely wonderful i will say this is the era of cary grant and his leading ladies being far too young for him like he's old enough to be their father and Eva Marie Saint is still with us today. She's one of our oldest living Oscar winners. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I think she is the actual oldest living one. And she's like one of the last golden age of Hollywood stars. It's like her and yeah. Joanne Woodward. So gotta say age dynamics. It's I'm not a fan of, even though I do love when Cary Grant is being hot on cinema. So I'll allow it here <laughs> and in charade. Yeah. <laughs> I also find North by Northwest so much fun because I think it is Hitchcock's kind of like, at least dialogue wise, like smartest because normally they're these film noirs, there are these horror films. And this kind of was taking the beats that a thriller may have while also kind of adding in like the beats of a mistaken identity type comedy mm-hmm. and melding those together. And obviously that works amazingly because you have Cary Grant who I think is like charming and attractive and most importantly talented enough to actually hold both of those almost like juxtaposing genres at the same time to make them work yeah no I mean I will say you know yes the the age disparity between him and Eva Marie Saint and this and him and Audrey Hepburn and Charade is 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 certainly jarring but at least I will say at least they don't write him, at least these screenplays did not write him to try make it seem like he's younger than he is. Um, he Yeah, like actually, Gary Cooper and that <laughs> other Audrey Hepburn film. That is not good. <laughs> he he's, he's actually an adult and older. He has his career. He has, he has all these things that he's got going on. And I, m- one of my favorite I mean, I love the fact that um, this. I've seen this movie so many times over the past couple of years, watching it with uh, my mom. It's it's just so endlessly entertaining. I love the fact that we get to see the dynamic between Cary Grant uh, and his mother in this, and uh, the the fact that she's very dismissive of him. Uh, she of uh, when she calls him when he's intoxicated and i one of my one of my favorite line rings of all time is during that phone call he makes to his mother in the uh in in police custody and after the phone is hung up he's like that was mother and he says it very matter-of-factly and very 
just very emphatically, it's like you you would think it's more serious uh, statement that he's making than he really is. But um, you know, it I I love that that little detail exists. The fact that um, you know the we get the interaction between him and his mother, it really does add something before he ends up on his own and during this during during this thriller and during this chase movie. And uh James Mason is absolutely terrific um as as a great bad guy. I there are times where I completely forget that he actually doesn't die in this. It's very rare. I think for 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 these movies where it's like the the villain actually doesn't die but actually gets in police custody but uh i i i absolutely love this and it, it the way the way it just takes very distinct twists and turns where it's like oh of course it ends up in this perspective it it ends up in this way but um also the fact that it's such a the precision in Hitchcock's craft in this movie, combined with Cary Grant's charm and just everybody else bouncing off of him, is priceless. It's it's. I want to shout out Ernest Lehman. He wrote the script, and you'll know him from other bangers like Sabrina, West Side Story, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Sound of Music. So the guy had range when it came mm. to writing, and I think because the script was so good and it wasn't, I don't, I don't say this as like a bad thing, typical Hitchcock, what you expect because it does have a little bit more fun elements and it feels like it's taking itself less seriously than a lot of his other films. I think that's a good contributing factor because when you think of Hitchcock, again, you think it's dark movies or scary and this one just seems a little more fun I wonder if how much of that was him coming off of Vertigo and him coming off of the disappointment of Vertigo. Because, I mean, that is, you know, as Morgan and I talked about last year, that's that's arguably one of his most personal films, uh, one of his most revealing films. And I know that he took the... He took the... Uh, he took the failure of that movie hard. And so much so to where... Jimmy Stewart had wanted to play uh, Roger Thornhill in this movie, and Hitchcock was didn't necessarily want him because of the fact that he kind of blamed Stewart for part part of the failure of uh, Vertigo. So he went back to Cary Grant, and um, I mean, honestly, Cary Grant's just a better choice for this role anyway because of the fact that he has he has a better fit for this type of suave character than Jimmy Stewart is. Jimmy Stewart's an everyman. Like, Cary Grant is somebody who you can tell having... Um, you you can tell kind of having a bigger-than-life personality that something like Roger Thornhill getting involved in a situation like this makes sense to have somebody like Cary Grant. Yeah, because if you have like a Jimmy Stewart in that role where it's like, oh, you're being, I'm being mistaken, like I slightly nerdy, but in Daring Man and being mistaken for like in this criminal activity, like that just doesn't track where no. you have someone like Cary Grant who is really suave, really, you know, 
is not the everyman. Um, that, that to me makes sense because it's like, oh, well, of course this devilishly handsome man who's wearing these perfectly tailored suits is in this type of circle when, again, in reality, you know, he isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, you wouldn't have been able to pass it off. And I also think, no offense to Jimmy Stewart, because he has done screwball comedies, you know, he did a lot of romantic comedies, but especially at that stage in her, his career, he wasn't able to, it was either one or the other. Yeah. And I don't think that he would have been able to hold both of those, like, genres and truths at the same time where I think that Cary Grant really kind of introduced us to the idea that thrillers don't have to always be super serious and comedies don't have to just be silly all the time like he really has I mean you look at I mean yeah Father Goose is kind of goofy but there are like real stakes in that type of film or Operation Petticoat or you know, charade, there are, while there are comedic elements in every single one of those films to different levels, there are still like serious stakes in all of those. And I, again, Cary Grant really is that person who can hold those together where Jimmy Stewart is, he's either in a shop around the corner or he's in vertigo. And like, there's no two truths at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really the lightest movie, quote-unquote, I think Stewart made with uh, Hitchcock was that remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. But, I mean, even that is, it's it's part of the same form, type of formula as North by Northwest, the type of movie Hitchcock made in terms of his thrillers, but it's also a very different thing because of the fact that, yes, you have Jimmy Stewart as the protagonist who have is having this story put upon him but he also has to convey something very different than what he would have to convey here here it makes sense you have a through line with Cary Grant with suspicion and to catch a thief to north by northwest with Jimmy Stewart it makes sense that you're going from rope to rear window to the man who knew too much to vertigo and I, I think, again, that's basically Hitchcock just realizing the strengths of both of these lead actors and why why he made a choice they made to go back to Cary Grant. 100%. And again, we're not here to slander Jimmy Stewart. We're just saying that his abilities are widely different than Cary Grant's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, exactly. Go watch the Philadelphia story. For more details. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, but I I absolutely I just I I just love North by Northwest. I've come to love it more and more the more I watch it. Um, the crop duster scene is just an absolute iconic one. I I it's love the abs- one of the greatest I, one I, of the greatest moments in cinema. And and seeing the way that builds and you. St- you you know immediately when he's dropped off there that something is not quite right, but you're not quite sure what it's going to be. And and the way that it builds just different elements, time after, t- moment after moment after moment. And then, you know, the, the Mount Rushmore scene is ridiculous. It's as ridiculous a, a, a 
finale as any action movie has come up with over the years. But, um, and it's interesting that I, you know, rewatching the, the Thin Man for this, we, we have two movies that end with uh, trains. We, we have two movies where the, the lead couple end up in a train together. Now, granted, this one is much more obviously a double entendre in the way that Hitchcock uh, edits it together and performs it, and they perform it, but um, it, it's, it goes with the tone of this movie, and Eva Marine Sane is just... I, I love her performance in this because, I mean, apart from just being a knockout, is she also is a character unto herself. Like, she's as interesting of a character in this movie as Roger is. And I, and even to a certain extent, and even if she wasn't somebody who was just, who was on the other side and trying to infiltrate Van Damme's uh, operation, she would still be interesting. And I think that's one of the things that, and, I mean, Eva Marie Saint is just a tremendous actor in and of herself. There's a reason she won an Oscar for On the Waterfront. But um, she she she's absolutely terrific in this movie. Yeah, she's the femme fatale without it being kind of cliche. Yeah. Like, there's a little bit more texture in it than a lot of the other women in Hitchcock's, you know, thrillers where there is that femme fatale quote-unquote type character yeah big fan of her like she's still working to this day like she was a voice on my favorite animated series the legend of Korra and does a great job and it's super cool that one of our living legends got to be in all these great films and I just it delights me yeah I will be that person that slanders the academy awards again because this only got a few nominations like art direction, editing, and adapted screenplay, or no, wait, directly for the screen, so original screenplay. Y'all, gang, it lost to Pillow Talk, a not good movie. It's a very weird, very, very weird movie, but it also, like, is in a category with the 400 Blows and Wild Strawberries, and, like, good movies, like, classics that we still talk about today, so I'm very... I'm sad it lost, but at I, least it lost with a bunch of icons. I will say, like, Pillow Talk's another movie I know my mom really liked. Uh, I I haven't yeah. seen it in a while. So now hearing you say that, I'm very curious to revisit it to see how I feel. Um, but It's, like, not an offensively bad film. It's just one of... Unlike The Thin Man and, like, throw a dart at every rom-com of the 30s and 40s. This is a very, um, it's fine, but it did not need to win an award. Oh, <laughs> no, I, with, just with, with that category, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, yeah, you, it's, it, um, was, it was it's nominated some, with at least three yeah. other better screenplays and this 400 Blows and Wild Strawberries. Um, <laughs> and it's just a chaotic <laughs> film in some cringeworthy ways, but hey, they got paid. Those are great hot stars. Rock <laughs> Hudson, Doris Day, they're hotties, so you know what? Get it. But also, this is the year of Ben-Hur, and Ben-Hur yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
the the disrespect that the academy had for Bernard Herrmann's scores will always baffle me. The fact that he only won one Oscar is just startling when he had a run with Hitchcock that included Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho back to back to back. I will never understand that in a million years. You know, only just the most iconic sound cues that you know, like within the first two notes. Yeah. <laughs> Dare I say he was the Diane Warren of his time? He was the Diane Warren of his time. You heard it here first, kids. <laughs> that that is that is a take I did not expect tonight. But you know, given the we're journey bring, of the, it's why you invited circle. us. Hey, you know what? It's 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 chaotic Leo season. I I I asked for Heck this. Yeah. We we start with Conair. We end with uh, Bernard Herrmann being the Diane Warren of his time. Started um, with an airplane, <laughs> ended with a plane. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely true. Um, any any more favorites from MGM that you guys want to you you guys want to uh, pinpoint before we wrap up here? Oh my goodness. Truly, too many. Let me pull up my list. It is. What are yours, Brian, before I go over? Okay, so I would say Eric von Stroheim's Greed. I would say The Cameraman. I mean, I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to list Wizard of Oz and Gone with Wind. You know about those. You know how you feel about those. Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, 2001 Space Aussie, um, Shaft, Network, Clash of the Titans, Poltergeist, The Secret of Nim, Pink Floyd the Wall, Live, Year of Living Dangerously, War Games, Christmas Story, 2010, Spaceballs, Moonstruck, Blown Away, Stargate, Get Shorty, GoldenEye, Ronin, Return to Me, Wind Talkers, Rocky Balboa, Mr. Brooks, and Hot Tub Time Machine. Okay, I will keep mine a succinct list of maybe 10 or so. Shop Around the Corner, Philadelphia Story, Cat on Hot Tin Roof, Nanachka, Libeled Lady, Men and Bill, Emma, the um, 30s version of Emma, Legally Blonde, Uptown Girls. There are too many others. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, like, even... I'm yeah. gonna look for ones we haven't said. I get, I mean, sh- the shop around the corner, right? Um, they also have a lot of the Todd Browning horror films, so like Freaks mm-hmm. and The Unholy Three. Um, we also have Marx Brothers stuff with like Night at the Opera and silly nonsense like that. And as we said, Legally Blonde, it's very important. Cultural um, text, yes, yes. Um, Uptown Girls, R.I.P. Brittany Murphy, we miss you. Every day of my life, I do. And, I mean, why not Pink Floyd, The Wall? I do really love that. It's weird and trippy and... I mean, Thelma and Louise, I'm, like, going through all of this stuff, and I'm like, there are too many. Like, whenever you gave me this assignment, I was like, well, this is hard. (laughs) I made a giant list. I mean, I could have gone with Pink Floyd the Wall as well, but I'm actually talking about Alan Parker next month on the podcast, so we are going to be getting to Pink Floyd.
Pink Floyd. Gang, I could have went with Showgirls and Hackers. Like you oh, never yeah. know. I I I want to thank you, Charles, for keeping me from a- having to watch Showgirls a third time because I feel like I'm kind of done with that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that. I will mention Victor Victoria also, but then oh, I will also okay. say don't watch the remake of The Women because everybody deserved better, including Meg Ryan. The person making that did not update it for a time when women could like have a credit card, you know? No, no, don't, don't do that to yourself. No, 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 no. But, okay. Uh, well, with that being said, uh, where can we find uh, you online? I am Chel seven two five Twitter Letterboxed. Um, we're at Untitled Cinema Gals. I've got Community Rewatch podcast. That's all I'm about to do. I'm probably going to go rewatch another MGM classic, Moonstruck, because I mean, iconic cinema, iconic hair cinema. Love it. <laughs> yeah, and as Chel said, we're at Cinema Gals. And I'm at MSML Roberts on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure, pretty sure on Letterboxd, but who can never be sure? You can probably- 60, 40 chance. Yeah. <laughs> so um, best of luck in trying to find me there. <laughs> She's a ghost. Well, but uh, ladies, thank you very much for joining me on this chaotic episode. Thank you so much for letting us really <laughs> be as chaotic as we possibly could. <laughs> I mean, the amount of times, like, I made y'all break. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't have had any other way. I'd like to thank Morgan and Chels for joining me tonight on the uh, podcast. It's always terrific to uh, talk to them. Uh, check out Untold Cinema Gals pod- Project. We've uh, talked about movie soundtracks. We've talked about Godzilla versus Kong. So it's great to have them on the uh, podcast, and we'll be sure to have them again on uh, sooner or later. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we've got some really great guests and some really interesting discussions coming up. Uh, again, check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. can check out the Sonic Cinema Podcast on Good Pods, Apple, Google, Spotify, as well as the YouTube channel. But also, you can check us out at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much.